Well, we come this morning to one who will be a pivotal figure in the history of the gospel's progress. Really a pivotal figure in the history of the world. And the figure who will dominate the second half of the book of Acts. And the figure who will write nearly half the books of the New Testament. And what enables that unlikely and astonishing outcome is our text today in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. This is surely the most famous conversion in history. It's a conversion of a well-known and undisputably historical figure. Nobody that I know disputes the historicity of the Apostle Paul. It's a conversion so publicly documented, he refers to it three or four times in his own writings. A conversion so thorough and so transformative. A conversion followed by a life so fruitful and credible that the 18th century statesman, George Littleton, said that, quote, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, is of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. Just the conversion and the ministry of Paul is enough to prove the truth of the faith. There's no accounting for this conversion, either by psychological factors or by some emotional neediness or some emotional disorder or by some form of delusion or wish fulfillment. This is impossible once one becomes familiar with the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He is an entirely credible figure. Human, to be sure. Passionate. Fiery. Sane. Brilliant. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly the most brilliant figure in the first century of the world, I would argue. More brilliant than Seneca or Cicero. Pastoral. Believable witness to the truth of the faith. Stack up all the atheists on one side of the scale and put Paul on the other side. They're all lighter than air. I'm with him. I'll take his testimony. Go ahead, line them all up on this side. So, with that, we'll make three points. They're on page six of your outline. Uh, the outlines are on page six of your bulletin. Saul, Jesus, Ananias. First, Saul. Now, we saw previously, right, that this, this Saul collected the cloaks of Stephen's murderers and approved, we're told, of the execution, the stoning. He was ravaging the church, entering houses, dragging off, we're told, men and women. And imprisoning them. And so we find him here still in our text. The text says breathing out threats and murder. 
Right? It's, it's an image which evokes a wild, snorting beast. Later, he will say he was in a raging fury. And late in his life, he describes himself. Right? He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of the church. I persecuted the church of God violently. And I tried to destroy it, he says in Galatians. So here he is, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Right? Not content, right? Not content to persecute believers in and around Jerusalem, where he is. He wants to go abroad and hunt them down. So he goes to the high priest and he asks for what are essentially extradition papers. Letters to the synagogues in Damascus, Syria. Now we know this is a known legal instrument. Right? We know that the Romans granted this kind of legal power to the high priest at this time. This is a legal order. It's a warrant. Such that if he found any belonging to the way. It's a beautiful description of Christianity that we don't have time to unpack this morning. But it's just called the way. It's a way of life. Christianity is a, is a, a, a way. If I find any belonging to the way, men or women, he could bring them bound back to Jerusalem. So he wants to chase believers down all the way to the synagogues in Damascus, which is 150 miles from Jerusalem. It's a week's journey. So you can start to taste this, right? This is the level of frenzied religious fanaticism that is at play here. He's, there's no heeding of the advice of the famed Rabbi Gamaliel. Remember Acts chapter 5 when Gamaliel said, listen, why don't we just wait and see what God's providence does with this new movement? You know, if it's from God, you don't want to be opposing God. Just take our time. Let's see what happens. That's not for Paul. Right? He becomes a one-man inquisition. So that's Saul. Secondly, Jesus, or if you will, Saul and Jesus. Praise be to God. Here, the hunter becomes the hunted. Verse 3. Now he went on his way and he approached Damascus. It's, it's about noon, he tells us later. And suddenly this light from heaven shines around him. Brighter than the sun is how he later describes it. And though Paul doesn't know it quite yet, this is a Christophany. That is, this is an epiphany. It's a revealing of the resurrected, the exalted, and the transfigured Christ, who we read about in the gospel lesson. This is an objective appearance of Christ to Paul. It's not a mere subjective psychological experience. Ananias will say, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road. And Paul himself will say that he saw the Lord, that he appeared to me. And indeed, part of what this story is doing is that it's authenticating Paul as a legitimate apostle. 
Because he wasn't one of the original 12, and apostles had to see the resurrection of the Lord. They had to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And on the basis of this event, right, this Christophany, Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? So this heavenly light knocks him to the ground. This is the divine glory which leveled the apostles in the gospel lesson. Which illuminates the humanity of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's the same overwhelming light. The same dreadful divine fire that John sees radiating from Christ in Revelation chapter 1. And he too falls down like a dead man. This is the unapproachable light of God, the divine glory and luminosity which irradiates heaven itself and upon which you shall gaze when Christ appears and his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So he falls to the ground Because that's what you do. And he hears a voice saying, and we know from a later account that this voice is in Hebrew speaking to him. He tells us that later. Saul, Saul. Right? The double use of the name here tells us this is an extremely personal and urgent form of address. It's the form of address God used with Abraham when he was about to put his knife to the throat of Isaac. And God called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And it's the form of address that God used with Moses at the burning bush. Moses, Moses. So it's telling you this is an epochal event. A singular event. Saul, Saul. And then these astonishing words, why are you persecuting me? It's not, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you such an opponent of Christianity? It's why are you persecuting me? There's this profound and mystical solidarity between Christ and his body, Christ and his members, such that what happens to you what happens to the members or the body of Christ? Right? What happens to our persecuted brothers and sisters globally around the world? Right? What happens to them happens to Christ. What is done to the least of these is done to the Lord. That's the first question. Why are you persecuting me? Saul's thinking, who's the me here? So he asks for identification. Who are you? So now you have, right, you have already have a stunned and disoriented Saul. He receives an even greater shock. The answer comes back to him. I am Jesus. And just that one word changes everything for Saul. It means Jesus, whom he loathes, right, is alive. And well. And it means he dwells in heavenly glory. And by implication, it means he is Lord. 
And it means Saul has been opposing God. And his Christ. It means he's been seeking to kill the followers of the Jewish Messiah. I mean, can you imagine devoting your whole life to this? And being this wrong? In an instant, in a flash of light, he realizes all of his burning zeal for God has been misguided. Tragically disordered, blind, and destructive. There's no fanaticism quite like religious fanaticism. As Bob Dylan said, you don't count the dead when God's on your side. You don't count the dead when God's on your side. But there is one, Saul now knows, who isn't dead. I thought he was dead. He isn't dead. He's alive forevermore. He is Jesus whom he tells Saul, you are persecuted. Now, you guys know the end of the story. But Saul has to be thinking here, this is not going to end well for me. Right? <laughs> This is not going to end well for me. The saints we see in this scene are called to share in the sufferings of Christ, to fill up, as Paul puts it in Colossians, what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. So the exalted Lord not only shines forth in glory, he speaks to Saul, he speaks his word. So he is both the radiance of the Father And he is the eternal, eloquent word of God. And in verse 6, again, we're in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, he gives a prostrate Saul directions. He says this to him, rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. Saul's thinking, all right, well, at least it's not an immediate execution. Notice there are men with him. Saul has people with him. They're witnesses to this reality, to the objectivity of the event. They heard the voice. They didn't see anyone, but they heard the voice. So Saul rises and we're told that although his eyes were opened, right, he saw nothing. And this blindness would surely evoke for him, right, a devout Torah observant Jew. It would evoke the promised curses of the covenant for disobedient Israel, which we heard read from Deuteronomy 28 which said, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. Saul then, sure he's on the side of the angels, and that he had the blessing of God, is now tasting the covenant curses. And he who was to enter Damascus as a conquering hero of righteousness capturing the wicked, is led by the hand as a captive of the Christ he opposed. The Christ of whom he would write later, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. One of whom, Paul could have said, was me. And for three days, he's without sight. He neither ate nor drank. So that's Saul and Jesus. The third point is Saul and Ananias. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple. He doesn't appear to... This guy, Ananias, he's he's not an officer. He's not an apostle. He doesn't have an ordained office that 
that we know of. He's just a disciple at Damascus, named Ananias. And the Lord Jesus, who continues to speak and direct the whole scene, speaks to him in a vision. And the Lord says something to him that is chilling, right? Something that would induce terror. He says, rise and go to the street that is called Straight. As an aside, this street is still there. It's one of the main east-west thoroughfares in Damascus. Rise, go to the street that is called Straight, and to the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus. Right? All good so far. Um, straight, I got it. I know that street. The house of Judas, okay, I can do that. A man, fine. A man from Tarsus, that's an, yeah, that's fine. Named Saul. That's the terror. (laughs) Behold, the Lord says, he's praying. He's on an involuntary three-day darkness retreat. (laughs) We can be quite sure that he's radically reevaluating everything he ever believed. So the Lord continues to Ananias and says... Saul has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias, as you might expect, protests. He says he's heard of the extent of his ravaging the church. He's heard of the evil this man has done to the saints in Jerusalem. And not only that, notice in, in the text, Ananias knows about the extradition papers. And he actually says he has authority. He uses the word authority. He's got legal authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on the name of the Lord. I mean, so put yourself in Ananias' shoes. To visit this man would be like turning yourself into the secret police. The Lord is asking you here, Ananias, one of the hunted, to care for the hunter. We'd certainly want to negotiate here. Lord, how about a 90-day probation period so we can make sure this conversion is authentic and genuine? You know, maybe we can observe them from a distance. You know, take some small steps. But over his protest, the Lord says to Ananias, go, obey. For he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry my name. Beautiful phrase before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And of course, in the rest of the book of Acts, we see this start to happen with the emphasis being on the Gentiles. And the Lord, again, still speaking to Ananias here, right? Still still talking to Ananias, says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Four quick things here about Saul. First notice, he's a chosen instrument. It's the sovereign electing God, not the will of Saul or any man, which is governing the scene here and which governs the calling of his people. Second, Saul is to carry the name. That is to carry the divine glory of Jesus to the nations. He comes carrying letters from the high priest. He leaves carrying the name of Jesus to the world. And there is no higher calling for us than bearing that name before the world. Being the Roman emperor would be a radical demotion for Saul. 
I, I remember a story R.C. Sproul told where he said his secretary came to him and said, people are complaining that it's harder to get a hold of you than the president. And Sproul said, I told, I told my secretary, tell them I have a higher calling than the president. <laughs> to be president would be a demotion for me, he said. Your calling, like Saul's, is to bear the name of Jesus to the nations. Third, this scene is the site, notice, both of Saul's conversion and his commission, his, his calling, his commissioning as an apostle. So the same is true with you. God calls you to himself and he commissions you for service. He saves you. He sends you. And it's important to know what your commission in the world is. And fourth and finally, suffering is basically to the apostolic calling and Saul's life will, will show that. And of course, he will teach that this, this suffering is, is basic to the church's existence in the world. Suffering is the lot of the godly, Calvin says, and no one can preach the gospel in a hostile world unless his mind has been prepared for suffering. So Ananias, despite his hesitance, obeys. He departs. Can, you can picture him walking down the street of Strayed, looking for Judas. As he finds the house, and we're told he enters the house. Right. Again, this is an ordinary believer. He is the one whom God has chosen to welcome the hunter into the community of the hunted. And he goes in, and we're told it's a beautiful scene, understated, but it's really moving. He lays his hands on Saul. Surely with some trepidation. And get this. Possibly the first words Saul hears as a Christian. Certainly the first words he hears from the Christian community recorded in scripture. Are these moving words from Ananias. Brother Saul. That is extraordinary. He does not know who this guy is going to turn out to be. I mean, imagine this, beloved. Imagine this. The governor of New York State gives legal authority to a guy or a man or some person to hunt down the Christians in New York State, to imprison them, to bind them, and to kill them. And the person doing that has been doing it until just a few days or so before. Right? And then you greet them with the words, brother, Saul, right? These are words of warmth and of fraternal welcome. These are costly words. These are words of embrace in the face of violence, right? These are words of mercy and forgiveness to one's enemies. Imagine that person walking in here and he's killed your friend or imprisoned somebody you know or love. The whole glory of the gospel is in that first word spoken to Saul, brother, there's no probation period. There's no status of, uh, you know, twilight between murderer and brother. These are words of embrace, of turning the other cheek, of a love that keeps no record of wrongs. Brother Saul. Two of the most moving words in the whole New Testament. And then he relays that the Lord Jesus has sent him. That Saul might regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And he does. Scales fall from his eyes. He regains his sight. Jesus came to bring recovery of sight to the blind. So the hunted is now a member of the community. The hunter is a member of the community of the hunted. Now, there's a lot of things to say here. I'm going to close by making one point. I want to highlight one thing. Namely, the free, glorious, mighty grace and mercy of God. Is there any scene more confirming of the reformed view of salvation than this scene? I mean, God is not pleading with Saul. He's not making an offer to Saul. He's not negotiating with Saul. He's not saying, you know, let's, let, why, why don't we do this? Why don't we knock him off his horse? And if he decides he doesn't really want to follow me, we'll go look for another apostle to the Gentiles. Right? He's not hoping that Saul uses his free will to make a, quote, decision for Jesus. This will of Saul is a will seething with hatred and rebellion. It's a will which, against its will, is invaded by grace and redirected. It's not consulting. This is salvation which is of God all the way down. It pleased God, Paul would later say, to reveal his son in me. This is the gospel on display in this passage. We can put it in three words. Three words. God saves sinners. Now you have five words to remember from this sermon. Brother Saul and God saves sinners. For you and me, it will not be this dramatic, but the grace is just as glorious. It's just as mighty, and the truth is the same. God saves sinners. And this experience would shape the apostles' language in describing just how it is that God saves sinners. He translates us, he says in Colossians 1, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Right, 2 Corinthians 4, it's our call to worship. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this same Saul, years later near the end of his life, would say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now you might think, well, that was for Saul, and he was unique. But he goes on to describe, again, this is in 1 Timothy, one of the purposes of his conversion, that's for you. Like, what does this conversion mean for you? He says this, I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, he means as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. His perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is an example to you of the perfect patience of God. If you think your sins are too great or too grave or too many or too powerful or too shameful or have left too much wreckage. Remember 
the unlimited grace. Your sins are going to crash and shatter on the rock of God's mercy. There are no threats. There's no symmetry between our wickedness, profound and pervasive as it is, and the mercy of God. Remember the unlimited grace, the perfect patience on display here. God saves wretched, murderous, hateful, violent, vile, enslaved sinners. Right? He doesn't come to clean up basically moral people. And he saves them out of bondage. He saves them out of darkness. And he saves them against their fierce resistance and their own imprisoned wills. C.S. Lewis puts this wonderfully, describing his own conversion and the compulsion he felt. He says this, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion, his gracious compulsion is our liberation. Like his compulsion is our liberation. Praise be to the God of glorious grace. Amen. Amen.